0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Henhouse studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello again, faithful listeners and fans of music nerdiness. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. It is my show. My name is Steve Dawson, and I'm so glad that you could join me today while I sit down and have a long chat with harmonica legend, Charlie Musselwhite. The harmonica is, in the right hands, an incredibly expressive instrument. And sadly, though, it gets a bit of a bad rap from being overdone a bit and often played not all that well but in the right hands. It can be an incredibly powerful voice, and no one has dedicated their life and spent as much time mastering the harmonica as the man who I'm talking to today, Charlie Musselwhite. In his playing, there's shades of Little Walter and Shaky Horton and all the blues greats that influenced him, but Charlie manages to transcend that, and is such a force on the instrument, and such a great singer as well, that It doesn't seem to really matter anymore what instrument it is that he's playing from ferociously distorted solos with tom waits to his recent acoustic pairing with ben harper to his series of amazing solo records charlie does it all he told me about his humble beginnings in memphis learning to play and hanging out with elvis presley and uh, on through his time in chicago where he really paid his dues and And then finally moving out to California, where he started to make a mark on contemporary blues music. I think you're going to really dig this conversation, even if you have no history with the harmonica. Charlie's history is is rich and storied, and he has a great memory for the important recordings that he's been involved with. His discography is totally off the hook, so go take a look at that. But his session history includes names like John Lee Hooker, Blind Boys of Alabama, Tom Waits, of course, John Hammond, Bonnie Raitt, Big Joe Williams... And on and on it goes. Funnily enough, I have two interviews for you this season with Harmonica Masters. And also funnily enough, they're both named Charlie. So if you have any guesses on who the second Charlie is, you win a gigantic prize. I'm not telling you what that prize is. In fact, I don't even know. And there may not really be a prize. Anyway, today's Charlie, Charlie Musselwhite, has a very recent album out called I Ain't Lion, which you should go pick up. And he has a new album project on the way that I don't think it's out yet, but it features him on guitar. He talks a bit about it uh, in today's interview, but that should be amazing, too. Thanks again to all the listeners out there for tuning in. And as always, you can drop me a line and connect with me or the show at stevedawson.ca. There's a page there for Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. There you can make comments, and if you feel so inclined to contribute with a donation of any sort, we would greatly appreciate it. It's the only way we have of keeping this show going. Um, If you haven't done so already, make sure you go over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. It's free, and it helps us promote it as well, the more people that subscribe through iTunes. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. i got to say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Soan Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going, too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. Now, I'm truly honored to bring you my conversation with the great Charlie Musselwhite. I've spoken with a lot of different instrumentalists on this show, but you're the first really dedicated harmonica player I've had on. And um, I know it's not that rare of an instrument, but to me, it is rare that someone can come along and... Be such a force on one instrument for so long did you see yourself really at like as a kid being dedicated to the harmonica or was it just something that that developed because you were one of the guys playing it around
1: well i just uh first of all i was going around memphis collecting old blues records 78s you know yep. and in junk stores and places and uh, and i found a lot of the blues records i didn't know anybody in the world was collecting them other than me i and so, if I had two of the same one, I'd throw one away <laughs> and keep the best one. Yeah. So, I probably threw away thousands of dollars of valuable old 78s. But, anyhow, I really love the way the harmonica sounds, um, especially like uh, the first Sonny Boy, John Lee, Sonny Boy Williamson. Uh-huh. I love that sound. And, um, uh, eventually i got to thinking about it what well, it makes you feel so good listening to it i bet it feels really good to play it and i thought well you got some harmonicas laying around here well i was a real a real little kid everybody had harmonicas you mm-hmm. just played little just make up stuff you know i wasn't playing blues but so there were harmonicas in the house uh-huh. laying around and i thought well i think i'll just start playing my own blues you know and I, i go out in the woods and just started figuring out how to get those blues sounds, the blues notes and everything. And
0: So was it sort of a combination of, of hearing the 78s you were collected collecting, plus having the instrument lying around that you were able to kind of put two and two together eventually?
1: Well, I just liked the way the harmonica sounded. I also liked guitar. My dad gave me his guitar, and I started teaching myself blues on guitar too. And about the same time, when I was around 13. Uh-huh. And a few years later, I started uh, actually meeting some some of the real old-timers around Memphis that were still around and and just hanging out with them and little informal, spontaneous jam sessions in their homes with a company with a lot of drinking. Uh-huh. I know
0: that uh, Furry Lewis was around there, right? And you had some encounters with him?
1: Oh, yeah. I used to see him all the time. Him and Will Shade, another guy named Willie B. Uh-huh. Willie Borum was his real name. Uh Another guitar player named Earl Bell. And uh, there was just a lot of guys around uh, back then. I ain't
2: got no.
0: And I heard you met Gus Cannon as well, right? Was he uh,
1: was he an influence on you? Well, I met him and uh, hung out with him. You know, everybody influenced me on you know to some degree or another. Yeah. but at that time. In my life, I wasn't thinking about this was something I was going to do uh-huh. as a profession. I just loved the music, yeah. and I wanted to play it, and that's pretty much all there was to it, as far as I was concerned. Right. I didn't know it was possible for me to... I mean, the guys I was listening to on those old 78s, most of them were all gone, uh-huh. and uh, except for a few I met around in Memphis. And... Uh, you know, you didn't hear that on the radio anymore, that it was old when it was like that. You heard, you know, Muddy and right. Wolf and John Lee Hooker and like that on the radio. I like it like that. Whoa. Yeah, I just wasn't thinking about th- about that at all. I and mean, making a living playing music, I I didn't think I was good enough. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I guess eventually I got better. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens, right? Um, but that was in the beginning. That's that's how I was thinking.
0: Right, right. And you, you mentioned uh, the first Sunny Boy Williamson. Um, is there a song or two that you remember hearing on one of those seventy eights that that really like caught your ear that that um, stuck with you?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't remember the title, but I remember when my baby left me, she left me a mule to ride. Yeah. When the train left the station, the mule laid down and died. Uh-huh.
2: Well, I had a little duck and I named him Jim. I put him on the pond, just the stream and swim you. got the bonnet up and go. You got the
1: bonnet up and go. You know that I buy mommy, you know that Papa got you wall.
0: Was it easy to find uh, 78s in Memphis in those days? Were they kind of everywhere around? Or did you have to really dig them out of old record shops and stuff?
1: I just went to junk stores and oh, yeah. used furniture stores. Really? Yeah, I found lots and lots of 78s, but uh, of all kinds of music. And uh, actually, I, I would buy some of the other stuff, too, if it looked interesting. That's how I discovered a lot of like uh, Cuban music and yeah. music greek music from around the world that had those same scales in it that had a blues kind of a feel to it yeah totally One one uh, used furniture place I found had a huge collection of blue 78s uh-huh. stuck way back in the back in this cabinet. You had to crawl over uh, washing machines and dryers and stuff to get back there. And uh, they wanted a lot of money for they wanted For me, it was a lot of money. They wanted like 50 cents a piece <laughs> right. instead of where in most of the junk stores, they were only like a nickel or a dime. Yeah. So I would buy a little stack of them until uh-huh. so I could save up some money and go back and get another little stack. But one day I went back to buy some and I said, oh, we took all that stuff to the dump. Oh, man. Thought, oh, God. And these were in great shape. They're all in the original uh, paper, papers they came in. and yeah. God, that just made me sick. That'll break your heart. Because then later on, I... I met a guy that had been a distributor for 45s on jukeboxes. Uh-huh. And his garage was had tens of thousands of 45s. Just, I mean, the floor was probably a foot deep. Really? I'm serious. And just 45s. Every step you would take in his garage, you we were breaking records. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so,
0: so you were uh, you were collecting more like the country and Delta Blue stuff. And then on the radio, you were hearing more of the Chicago side of things. Um, was there Were you Preferring one over the other Or did you just love it all
1: I loved it all I mean I could see how The country went to the city You know And the down home Acoustic blues Became electric But it's still blues And had the feeling. it Yeah Yeah it's... And then with those Jukebox records that was getting all the More modern stuff too You know And a lot of it was rare uh, I found out later Oh
0: all that Like all the chess stuff And all that Yeah
2: True little baby monkey
0: I guess in Memphis at, at that time, this is like in the in the 50s. That stuff was being played everywhere, right?
1: Yes, Memphis it ain't the same Memphis today that I grew up in. I tell you yeah, that. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, Beale Street was still Beale Street, and there were still uh, blues singers that lived all in the neighborhood around Beale Street. Uh-huh. And guys that played on the street for tips. Yeah, I was fascinated with the street singers. I would hang out. Look, I'd look all around downtown for street singers or down on Beale Street, I, they really, I, I was too shy to talk to them uh-huh. in the beginning, but later on I got to know a lot of those guys
0: too. The Beale Street that we know today is more just like a big party scene with a lot of, um, uh, you know, bands playing Mustang Sally and stuff like that. But back in the day when it was really hopping in a, in a really legitimate um, uh, musical center, what was it like for, like, were you allowed to? cruise through there and go into the bars and stuff when you were a kid or no?
1: Well, uh, mostly I was hanging out in people's homes because okay. they weren't playing in clubs or anything. Uh-huh. Uh, there was one place on Bill Street called John's. I believe it was called John's or, and I, or was it Joe's? I can't remember. Uh-huh. But it was right across from Handy Park and I yeah. would go in there when I was much older and uh, they had amps in there and uh-huh guitars just laying around the stage in the back and i would get up there and play a little bit and just for fun right right people thought it was pretty far out that this young white kid would Uh play blue
0: yeah yeah no kidding (laughs) were there any other notable white musicians around beale street at that time or was it all just a traditional black blues
1: scene i didn't see any white people around there i'm uh imagine there were some uh-huh. uh, later or later on. There were. Yeah. I heard that Elvis went to Beale Street, but I never saw him. Uh, uh-huh.
0: I've I've heard some stuff. I can't remember who it was, but somebody recently told me that you, you you were sort of involved in the Elvis Presley scene somehow. Like you were over at his house a lot and stuff like that. What, what was your connection to him?
1: Well, I had his uh, phone number, and I could call it. He, see, Elvis would he liked to have these parties around town. He would like rent the whole fairground right. or he'd rent a theater and have all the latest couple of the latest movies and a whole bunch of roadrunner cartoons <laughs> or he'd rent a, a skating rink sometimes. And, just, and his parties always went from like midnight till dawn. Really, And uh, so I would call up and he hardly ever answered the phone. It was usually some lady would answer the phone. I'd, And I would ask where the party would be that night, and they'd tell me where, and I would go. (laughs) And I knew people that were in his uh, uh, security thing, and also a, a girlfriend of mine worked in the box office of the theater he would rent. So with having his phone number and knowing the people in security and the girl in the box office, I was able to get into just about any of his parties, I just showed up, you know. That is crazy. It was fun, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. and A lot of real pretty girls. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, mostly why I was going.
0: Right, yeah. Was there any musical element to it, or was it just like straight up fun and party and like whatever else they were up to?
1: There was no music. It was just hanging out. and uh, You know, like if we were at the theater, we were just watching the movies, and Elvis was making comical remarks about the movie. He was was really funny. He had a great sense of humor.
0: Wow. And how old were you when you were doing that?
1: I was a teenager. I I was driving. I had had an old 1950 Lincoln that I bought for $99. Wow,
0: sweet deal. (laughs) At some point, I don't know how old you were, but you made the move from Memphis to Chicago. Um, 18. You were 18. Okay, so what what made you... I mean, I can imagine that Memphis was... um, was an exciting place for you. It sounds like you had lots going on. How, like, where were you at musically, and what made you make the move to Chicago?
1: Well, like a lot of other people, I just got. I, I was looking for work. I mm-hmm. mean, the South economically depressed, and uh, I heard about all these big jobs up north in Chicago. And uh, friends of mine would go had gone already gone to Chicago, and they'd come back to visit, and they'd be driving a brand new car. You know, I wanted to get one of them new cars. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd go up to Chicago and get one of those factory jobs. I didn't know that uh, there was a big blue scene in Chicago. Oh, you didn't? I knew okay. really okay. nothing. I, I didn't know anything about Chicago, except that there were lots of factories and lots of work. Okay, I had been told that anybody in the entertainment business either lived in Hollywood or New York City. right? And uh, I believed that, and so it didn't. I didn't put it together that even though these records I had that chess records and VJ all had Chicago written on them. I didn't know that that meant that, you know, there was a blue scene there. Yep. I just thought that's where the records were made.
0: How, and, uh, how long did it take you to put that together?
1: Well, the first job I got was a driver for an exterminator <laughs> okay. and I would drive him all over Chicago. And so right away I learned the whole city and, uh, I would see these signs and posters and flyers and things about Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Elmore James. And yeah. I thought, whoa, they're all right here in Chicago. I mean, I felt like a kid in a candy store. started going to all those clubs and hanging out and out coming from memphis i already knew how to drink so i fit right in <laughs> and uh the blues clubs they were strictly adults there wasn't any kids my age black or white in those clubs and there wasn't any rarely did you ever see a white face in those clubs
0: so were you able to get in or did you like did you have a fake id or anything or did like how did you get into those shows
1: well, I was big for my age, and I'd wear a suit, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's how you dressed back then, yeah. uh, to go to go into clubs. I mean, people dressed up. Right, and, right. And uh, I would, too. And so I just, nobody bothered me. Nobody asked me. I, you just waltzed right in. It was pretty loose, you know. Yeah, cool. I just went where I wanted to go. Give me a
0: couple of uh, highlights, that, um, show-wise, that you would have seen at that point.
1: Uh, oh, everybody. I mean, uh, they were all there. I, uh, John Lee Hooker didn't live in Chicago. He lived in Detroit, right. but he would come regularly to play, and I'd go see him. Howlin' Wolf uh, saw him all the time, just all the time, and and Muddy too. And uh, Little Walter was a friend of mine, yeah. and I'd hang out with him. I'd go see him play, and he'd have me sit in with him. And-
0: what were the What were the Howlin' Wolf concerts like back in those days? Were they pretty wild, or were they more subdued, or what was the vibe at those shows?
1: Well, his home club was Silvio's. That's where he mostly played. He played other clubs around Chicago, too, but he mostly would play, if he wasn't on the road, you'd find him at Silvio's. Okay, And you uh, would walk in there, and first you'd come through the door, and there's a bar on the left, and then you go through that into a, a larger room where there was a stage, and tables and chairs, and people would sit around at the tables and uh, drink beer, and shots of whiskey, and and there wasn't a dance floor. People, I was they would dance in between the tables <laughs> or off to the side. Yeah. And Wolf would uh, sit on a chair on the floor in front of the stage uh-huh. uh, at, a, at a table. And I remember the first time I saw him, the band was going, and Wolf was sitting down playing, and I remember he started getting up. And, man, it seemed like he was never going to stop getting up. He was so... He, <laughs> Huge! Yeah. <laughs> he looked like the Rock of Gibraltar. Yeah, and that band was cooking. Uh-huh. Man, they were so good.
0: Hubert Sumlin was in the band at that
1: point. Hubert Sumlin was on guitar. Johnny Jones was on piano. Uh-huh. Uh, they were they were my, the ones I knew the best.
2: Oh, tell me, baby, why did you?
1: Was
0: he playing a lot of harp, too?
1: Yeah, he played harmonica every night. Yeah. He played, Wolf played guitar and harmonica. Yeah. Wolf, uh, he only played a few notes on the harmonica. He wasn't like all over it like somebody like Little Walter. Right. But it yeah. didn't matter. I mean, Wolf had such a great tone. It's such a huge tone. Yeah. He could just play one note and say it all. Right. It was great. He never got. It never got boring or tiring to, he could play the same thing over and over. It was always absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Um, what about Little Walter? Like, I, I know you must have been hugely influenced by him, and uh, was he, uh, um, uh, like, a good influence on you, and did you get to hang out with him very much?
1: Yeah, I hang out, hung out with him a lot. I would go to where he was playing, and uh, he'd let me sit in. I mean, It wasn't like letting me sit in. He'd make me sit in. Really? I, I wasn't really into... Push, promoting myself. I wasn't going around telling people I played and, hey, can I sit in? Yeah. And nothing like that. But when, when they found out I did play, yeah. well, that changed everything. They insisted I'd sit really? in. So uh, Walter would be, I'd be sitting there and Walter would be playing and maybe he'd he might walk over to me and hand me his harmonica and guitar. I mean, harmonica and microphone and say, play boy. <laughs> and he'd go over, over to the bar and talk to some lady right, or something yeah. while I was, and just make me, make me play whether I wanted to or not. So you, you, you
0: know? facilitated their womanizing.
1: <laughs> well, Walter liked the ladies. And <laughs> I did too.
0: <laughs> did, did little Walter have a home club as well, or was he playing all over Chicago?
1: He seemed to play all around. I mean, he might, uh, it, uh, today they might call it a residency where you would play at one club mm-hmm. uh, and then after a while there might be a shooting or something and they would close it up and you'd go play another club. Right. But I saw Walter at a lot of different clubs around Chicago.
0: Were, they, were these kind of late night gigs or were they kind of standard like nine to midnight or what kind of hours were these guys doing? Oh,
1: they would go to four in the morning. Most every night except Saturday night would go to five in the morning. No way. And le- later on when I started really when I started playing these clubs, uh, you know, you play for 45 minutes and you have 15 minutes off. I play seven, eight sets a night. This is
0: in Chicago. That was sort of the norm there.
1: I mean, that's how you get your chops really going really good playing that much every night. Yeah. No shit. Plus like a Monday morning, uh, they would have a blue breakfast show. that would go from like 8 a.m. to noon. And I'd see guys in there with a bowl of, Cornflakes and pour whiskey on it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a that's a healthy breakfast.
1: Uh, and but and the people that came to that Monday morning breakfast show, whoa man, they were the hardcore
0: That is hardcore.
1: They were like gamblers and hookers and uh-huh. uh you know, they were wrapping up the weekend, that's all. <laughs> wow.
0: So you mentioned John Lee Hooker was coming to Chicago a lot too, and and I know you were pretty tight with him and, and did a lot of playing with him over the years, right? Was there Was there some musical things that you think stood out that you learned from him? I'm sure there were, but are there a few highlights?
1: Well, I I learned a lot of guitar from John Lee Uh and other other people, too. I learned a lot from Robert Nighthawk. Uh Yeah, I would watch everybody and listen to everybody and try to pick up on everything I could. If
2: you don't love me Black Angel, please tell me the reason why. Well,
1: all right, man. So I have lots of influences. It'd be hard to. Yeah point to one particular thing and say, Well, I got this from so and so it's all in there somewhere. Yeah, you
0: just absorb <laughs> it. Was there a time when you were in John Lee's band or did you just kinda of play with him when he was in Chicago?
1: Uh I would sit in with him uh well, mostly out here in in California, after he moved out here and we were both living here, oh, okay. he would call me he would call me up and say uh, c- 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 come on, come on d- 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 down and, and, and help the old, help the old boy out. You know? <laughs> and uh, uh, he liked to, he liked to take a break, you know. So if he could have me, up and sit in, he'd, would we'll take a break. Yeah.
0: You know? While you were in Chicago, is that when you played with um, in Big Joe Williams's band? I know you, you did, a, you had a stint in his band, and he obviously had a huge amount of respect for you and your playing. Was that uh, in those years as well?
1: He was a guitar player he played a nine string guitar yeah. he'd been a contemporary of Robert Johnson and Charlie Patton he didn't have a band he played acoustic well he had, it was an acoustic guitar and sometimes he played it through an amp okay right but uh, I played a lot me and Joe roomed together in two places uh, the first place I got in a fight with the guy that owned the place and beat him up so <laughs> and Joe he was happy about that because Joe really hated that guy really and then and then we both moved over to another place I found in uh, Old Town, uh-huh. and we lived there for a while. And he would take me all around Chicago. Well, I remember we'd walk in Peppers Lounge where Muddy Waters would be playing. And when when Muddy would see Joe, he was like a like he he would be like a little kid because really Joe had been a hero to Muddy when Muddy was getting started. Uh-huh. He had his records and stuff and. I guess he learned listening to Joe's records. Yeah.
2: Oh, Lord, with a bullet in his head. Well, I saw those looks came when he went to motel trying to take some rest. That mean old snobber shot him dead to the next you. That Dr. Luther came was dead.
1: So uh, it was great to hang out with Joe and see all the old-timers and hear his stories. We'd sit up all night sometimes, just drinking beer and talking, and, and we'd play together too, just sitting around.
0: Wow, that's so cool. And and did you do gigs as a duo as well, or, or was it more of just a... Yeah. yeah,
1: Yeah, he would hire me. He'd ask me to come play with him, not all the time, but often. And in fact, when we were living in Old Town on Well Street, down the street was a little neighborhood bar called big john's and uh they knew that joe was living down the street and they thought he was like a folk singer or something they didn't know what they were getting into but they asked joe if he would come down and play for i think it was the fourth of july yeah and uh they didn't usually have live music uh so when we went and joe asked me to come with him and play and so we did and they sold so many drinks and (laughs) They asked Joe to well, come on back the next night. Just keep coming on back, yeah. and uh, we just kept playing there and turned into a regular gig because they were making making a lot of money off the drinks everybody was buying, and that that's began the whole thing where the blues flipped over from the south side to the north side because okay. after a while there was a point where Joe had to leave town, which he all, often did, yeah. and. Before that, though, uh, Mike Bloomfield had started coming around and listening to us, and he noticed there was an upright piano in there, and he asked if he could play that piano with us, and and Joe says, "Yeah, sure, go ahead." And so then it was piano, harmonica, backing up Joe. Really,
0: with Bloomfield on piano.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. So when Joe left town, Mike switched to guitar, and we got a drummer and a bass player, and we had a band. And okay. So we said kept the gig going and uh, and the and the business was just doing great yeah. and getting better and better and the other clubs in the north side saw the great business that Big Daddy was doing right. and so they wanted to start hiring uh blues bands from the south side too uh-huh. and the the clubs on the south side were smaller and they, they couldn't pay as well yeah. so they were making better money on the north side okay and uh so that's how the whole Blue scene shifted to the north side. Like, was
0: there a shift to like a white audience more, or was it pretty much the same? Like, still a pretty black audience at that point?
1: No, it was. Old Town was a white area. I mean, it's so a mixed area. There's, there's, there was a white and black and Puerto Rican and all kind of stuff. But uh, the black clubs on the south side, that's, people went to the clubs in their neighborhood. Right. Right a lot of white people on the north side were afraid to go to the south side and uh were afraid to go to a blues club on the south side. So this here's a chance for them to hear blues without going to the south side yeah. where they were afraid to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, so that must have opened it up a little so bit. Well, they
1: got there. turned on to a lot of blues that they didn't really know about. They were kind of, they sort of heard about it, but didn't really know. Uh-huh. And now here was their chance and... uh so that's how that went. Like at this point, are you are you making your
0: living from music, or is it still just something you're doing at night while you're while you're working, driving, and stuff like that?
1: When I was working at Big John's, we were working like uh, at least four nights a week, maybe five. I don't remember now. But so I was making a living mm-hmm. playing music. Okay. Later on, there were times when things got slower. And that you, back then, it was, jobs were so plentiful in Chicago, you didn't ever worry about it. You could go get a job just about any day of the week. You'd walk in a factory and they'd just tell you to grab a broom yeah. until they found something for you to do. Uh-huh. And they'd put you right to work. Okay. Um, so you might... And this happened a lot because the guys like Muddy and Wolf and Lil Walter and John Lee Hooker, they had were putting out regular forty fives, they were working all the time. Most of a lot of the other guys that were playing blues around Chicago, a lot of them had to have day jobs just to get by because the clubs didn't often pay enough. Right. Or there wasn't enough uh call for that particular person. You know? Right. Right. So uh you would bounce back and forth. You'd work in a club, you might get a steady gig at a club and like a said earlier, there might be some incident that would close it down, <laughs> and so then you'd be able to a gig so you'd get a day gig till you found another night gig right
0: um so how did how did your the band that you had that developed out of the big Joe Williams gig with with mike bloomfield um, how long did that band last for was Bloomfield playing with um Paul Butterfield yet at that point he had his own
1: band It was we were, and we were playing at big John's That was our gig uh later on we left there to move to another club that paid better. And then when we did that, Paul moved into Big John's.
0: Um, and, and did you and Paul know each, like, were you friends and, and compadres at that point, or did you not really cross paths with him?
1: Yeah, I knew Paul. We had, we hung out together. And later on, I I had moved to the South side by this time. And I was living in a really uh, rough area, uh, it, right in the middle of this, it was a huge gang called the Blackstone Rangers. And I lived at the dead end of Blackstone, uh-huh. and uh, Paul lived in Hyde Park, which is where it's on the south side, but it's a it's all around the uh, University of Chicago. Is a uh, uh, you know the the area around the the university there, yeah. which was different from the rest of the south side. Right. Yeah. And he would call me up and and uh paul loved pepsis he's he's say, hey man come on over and let's listen to some records or something i say, okay and he say, hey listen could you get me a pepsi on the way over <laughs> really what he wanted was the pepsi and for me to bring it to him you know <laughs> so and i didn't care it was fine with me we'd have a lot of fun hanging out uh-huh. and listening to records he had one day he gave me his whole stack of 45s of Little Walter. He gave me all his Little Walter
0: forty-five. Wow, that's cool. What a nice gift.
1: So we were friends and
0: uh, had a lot of fun. Um, going from, from those kind of gigs and, and those house gigs that you had, or, or recurring gigs that you had, how did, it, how did leading up to the first record, because you, you made a record, I think while well, you still lived in Chicago, that, the first Vanguard record, which is a killer album. Um, what was the, what was the lead up to, uh, to making that record, both like signing a deal with Vanguard and, and how did your band come about?
1: Well, uh, Sam Charters, who, uh, he, he was a producer and a writer. He had written a book called Country Blues and, uh, some other books later on about blues. And he would come through to, he lived in New York City, but at that time he had come to to Chicago and he knew that I knew where everybody was playing and so he liked to get me to take him out and hear all the whatever was going on and if I wasn't working I, I, I was happy to take him around Chicago and uh, then he did this series that he recorded in Chicago called Chicago the Blues Today and uh, he had heard me and Walter Horton another harmonica player Sneaky. playing together and he invited since he had heard us play together, he had us record together on that album. Oh, cool. And then later he uh uh Paul's album came out on a lecture yeah. and uh Vanguard wanted to know if I'd like to do an album for them and I said, Well yeah, sure I'll do an album. <laughs> I get <laughs> I got the time. Hell, yeah. <laughs> Ed B. for the drums and Bill uh, yeah. Bob Anderson on the bass and Harvey Mandel on guitar and Barry Goldberg on organ. And we met at the studio and we cut that album under three hours. No way.
0: <laughs> that, yeah. That's how to make a record, man. Uh, and where did you do it? Was that in New York or Chicago? In Chicago. And do you remember what studio it was at?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think it was an RCA studio, but it's gone now. I mean, they, uh, uh, that building doesn't even exist anymore.
0: Okay, so you go in there, and and um, was this your first time in the studio, or had you had a few experiences before?
1: No, I did some other, other recordings. I I remember Mike Bloomfield and I backing up some folk singer on something. I don't know, even know. I don't remember his name or anything okay. now, but. Uh, and then there were some other little things I did, I remember backing up uh, a soul singer named uh, Bobby Jones yeah, he made some 45's and I think me and Harvey backed him up. Uh-huh. alright
0: you know you ain't so big you, 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 you just tall, that's all alright Boss
1: man. Boss man. Hey. 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 All right. And then I, I recorded with uh, uh, Barry Goldberg, too. We recorded an album in uh, Nashville. Oh, really? And this was all before my album came out.
0: Okay. So you'd had some studio experience, so it wasn't really anything new to you. Um did you do it did you do the first record really quickly because uh you were just given a three hour chunk, or did you was it just like it just flowed so easily and so well?
1: Yeah, the union said that three hours was a session, and if you went one minute over <laughs> three hours, they had to pay you double. Right. And they were gonna let that happen. So that's that's the way it used to be back then. You you did you did what you had to do in that three hours or it didn't get done.
0: Now, some of the players on that record you mentioned, um, like Fred Bilo, uh, that's like, you know, he, he played on a, on a bunch of little Walters records. That must have been pretty exciting. Was he somebody that you were playing around with and just knew from Chicago, or was he brought in especially for the record?
1: Well, he lived in Chicago. He was a friend of mine. Oh, yeah, well, later on, we, we toured together. We drove all over the United States together.
0: Harvey Mandel, was he a Chicago native as well? Uh, he's from the suburbs,
1: but uh-huh. yeah. Uh, I think Wharton Grove, I think, was where he lived. So
0: that lineup that's on that record with Bob Anderson and Fred and Harvey, was that a solid unit that at that point you were playing with as like an, on a you know, full-time basis, touring and stuff?
1: No, we never played together. Really? They were all guys I knew. We met in the studio, made a record, and that was it. Really? We worked together. I mean, I worked with all those guys. But that unit on that record never played together live anywhere.
0: Oh, wow, no kidding.
1: Wow. I
2: mean well, I did
1: play live with Harvey and Barry and, and uh B Lo and, and Little Bob around yeah. Chicago and then later on uh, other places, but that I just called up who I could get to in mm-hmm. the studio that I thought was the best I could get a hold of that day. Right. And, uh, well, they, good they, job, you know, they met he met me there and yeah and we all knew all we all knew how to play. I mean, you just named the kid and count it off and we knew what to do the
0: instrumental um uh the minor one um uh Cristo Redemptor uh can you tell me a bit about that? That's a pretty special tune like had did it take long to work that out or um I mean, the melody's not intricate, but it's not the most basic blues thing going um what was the arrangement process like?
1: Well, first of all, I, uh, I listened to a lot of jazz, too, back then, uh, uh-huh.
0: um,
1: and I, that's where I became familiar with that tune. As soon as I heard that tune the first time, I remember thinking, well, I could play that on harmonica. <laughs> great melody and uh, i think i'm gonna record that someday and then when this album came up that uh, well, was my chance to record it and i wanted to do something a little different yeah and uh, so that was that that's why i did that and then ever since that album came out i've been playing that tune and i still play it every night that i play i tried to quit playing it because i thought people <laughs> were sick of hearing it <laughs> and people got angry with me. So I waited all night to hear, Crystal, you didn't play it. And they were angry, you know. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I, I thought I should give it a break. And uh-huh. so uh, after that, I, I, now I just play it every night. And I, I never get tired of it. It never gets boring. Oh, that's it's good. Always, somehow It always somehow seems new or fresh. It always seems a little different somehow. It's hard to explain. But it's... Uh, That's amazing. Uh, It's it's an amazing tune. uh,
0: Yeah, yeah. uh, Now, um, I'm not a harp player, but I do know that you approach that tune in a unique kind of way. You're playing in a different position. It's not exactly cross harp. It's not straight. Can you tell me a bit about how you approach playing that from a harmonica point of view?
1: Well, I play it in what's called third position.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, like on a C harmonica, C would be first position. G would be second position. D would be third. It's the circle of fifths. Yeah. And then A would be fourth position and E would be fifth position. Yeah. Um Walter Horton told me about fourth position and Little Walker told me about fifth position. Okay. Uh, so anyhow, whenever I'm when I'm thinking about playing something, uh especially like a specific melody like uh Christo Redentor, uh you think about the how, lay, that, how the notes in the melody will fit with the notes in that position, which one mm-hmm. is more, does uh, it work with better? And uh, right away, I could tell that third position would handle this just fine. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and, and you mentioned some influences on fourth and fifth position, but was third position something that you'd heard anybody else do, or was that something that you were really making up on the spot for yourself
1: most everybody played in first second or third position and okay When i heard about and learned about third and i mean fourth and fifth that was really uh getting intricate because nobody not many people knew about that but when they, i was told about it and explained about it then that really got my imagination going and uh-huh. i became a fan of the, those positions too
0: Okay. each one has
1: its own character tone wise
0: on that record, you know all your re- records, even your brand new one, especially like the your tone is always like really outstanding and uh, do you remember what you were Thank you. you what you were using back in those days, like for the first record um rig wise like do you, do you remember what kind of amp you were playing through or anything like that?
1: Well, when I recorded Crystal, I mean <laughs> recording that first album stand back, I didn't even own an amp or or the app I had wasn't sufficient to, mm-hmm. wasn't good enough. So they rented me an app for that. Okay. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was probably a Fender of some kind. Yeah. And Harvey Mandel had something, some new gadget that I thought it was new. I, I think it was new at the time called a fuzz box or a fuzz yeah. tone box or something. And yeah. Harvey says, you ought try this to get, get that tone, you know, and, uh, and I plugged it in, and man, I really liked the way it distorted the amp. But And when we recorded with it, I remember Sam Charters came running out of the studio <laughs> into, into the main room, saying, The sound is breaking up! It's horrible! You know, he didn't understand that distortion really is a tone, yeah, and uh, and how well it sounded. And uh, but to him, he was like, you know, Vanguard was an audiophile label. They right. Started right. out, they only did a, a classical at first, and then they kind of branched off into folk music. And then they got stuck with me, right? But uh, so, being an audiophile label, they're really into
0: perfect precise.
1: Theme. Yeah, and so this was really went against the grain, you
0: know,
1: distortion, yeah. but I still think it sounds better. Yeah, listening man. Listening back
0: uh, to So that distortion that, that that overdrive sound is due to a fuzz box on that record. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, I know that record did did really well for you and it sort of catapulted you in in stature for sure and um I think around that time you moved out to California, right? Um just wondering what what made you want to make the move, Um, you know, Chicago being sort of a hotbed of blues, I guess, was there more musically that you found interesting going on in California?
1: No, I didn't know anything about California. (laughs) The album came out and then I started getting calls. In fact, when the album first came out, I didn't even know it. Vanguard never sent me one. Really? (laughs) And people would, I'd run into people and say, yeah, I saw your record in in the store window or something. I said, no, it's not out yet. Oh, yeah, I saw it. Oh, well, you must have seen something else. They would have sent me a copy, I'm sure.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Well, Mike Bloomfield came over with a copy. He had bought it in the store and brought it to me. That was when I I got a copy of my first record.
0: Really? Wow. And, uh, that's like, nice. Thanks, Mike. And, and,
1: yeah. And I, I don't recall Vanguard ever sending me uh, that first one. In fact, here's a little story for you. I got a call. From the union, they said, come on down and get your session check Mm -hmm. from recording with Vanguard. And I go down there, and they said, well, it's going to cost you four bucks in work dues. Uh I said, oh, well, let me see. see? How much is that check for? And they showed it to me. Vanguard sent me a check for 36 cents. (laughs) What? They deducted everything they could possibly think of, like the renting my app and stuff like that. Yeah. So usually they... Usually they will let you have the session check, and they'll they'll uh, recoup from your royalties. They don't right. even want to wait for the royalties; they want to do money right now.
0: Just pull it out of their pocket. <laughs> I was, right I, was I was
1: I was counting on that session check to get me a good amp, so that was the end of that. Yeah, not so a lot of good amps it,
0: going for thirty five cents, hey? Eh?
1: No, thirty six cents. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> did, uh, he, ca- did
0: he cash? Did he cash it?
1: No, I didn't have the four dollars. <laughs> Oh, that I never got crazy. the check. Wow. So but that tells you where Vanguard was at. That's where they were at then, and that's where they're at now. And that record has never been out of print. It's been in, available ever since it first came out. And that's over 50 years ago, or almost 50 years ago.
0: And you've never seen a dime for it?
1: Well, I got later on, they had to pay me, you know, uh-huh. so, something. But the, the deal I signed was so bad that I've gotten very little... <laughs> And as it's changed hands, they will they refuse to renegotiate. So I'm uh-huh. stuck with a really bad deal, oh. and uh, and they don't care to. So I started getting calls from around the country: "Can you come play here? Can you yeah. come play there?" and all this stuff. And at that point, I had a day job and I had a new family too. I had a a baby boy at home. And, okay. And I was married, and so I wasn't into just traipsing around the country. Yeah. Well, finally, somebody called up and they offered me a whole month of work for really good money. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll take a leave of absence from my factory job and go out there and get that money and come on back. And but I got out to California. mm, I think about ten minutes went by and I realized I wasn't going back to Chicago.
0: (laughs) You just love it. Was uh, it the was it the Bay Area that
1: you were in? Yeah, my first gig was at the Fillmore with Butterfield and Cream. Oh,
0: oh wow! Um, so I, was it was it um, Bill Graham that brought you out for that gig?
1: No, it was somebody. It was a, a DJ that worked at the the local underground radio. The underground radio is what really gave me a career, along with having an album, because uh-huh. they were playing my records and they weren't playing them in Chicago. That's for sure. Yeah. The underground FM hippie radio stations, that's where that put a whole lot of people to work. Because okay. those guys, they weren't handed a list and said, this is what you play. Those guys would bring records from home to play. They played wherever they wanted to play.
2: Yeah, And uh,
1: they liked what I had done, and they started playing me. And that's how people found out about me.
0: By the time you got out to these shows in California, had people heard you at that point, like were they aware of your music and stuff?
1: Well they heard me on the radio.
0: So you ended up playing the Fillmore with with Cream and Bloomfield for the first for the first gig in California? Butterfield. Yeah. What do you remember about that night? Was it pretty mind boggling?
1: It wasn't a night. We played for like uh back then you'd play the Fillmore, I think like four nights uh uh-huh. five nights, I forget. That would be you'd play all week. Or at least three. It was a long time ago. I don't remember exactly, you know. Yeah. But I know it was more than one night, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I, I well, I've never been in a place so big. To, to me, it looked like I, it was just huge. Today, when I walk in there, it's like just another bar, you know? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> another club. It doesn't but compared seem to that the, big
0: compared to the little little greasy joints you've been playing in Chicago. it Was gigantic ballroom, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I, it was unbelievably huge. I mean, it was. Breathtakingly huge to, to me, coming from those little blues clubs, yeah. and I've never seen so many people. I mean, there were hundreds of people, maybe yeah. a couple of thousand. I don't know. Uh-huh. It seemed like it seemed like the whole world was there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Were you playing regularly at the Fillmore, or were you playing all over San Francisco, or what was the what was your work situation?
1: Well, I started playing all around the Bay Area, yeah. Ber- Berkeley and Oakland, and a lot of little towns. And on the whole West Coast, I found out, uh, they all paid really good money. They had these big rooms with lots of people going to them. And, uh, yep. So the West Coast was where it was at. They thought that was like exotic, you know. They didn't know really? about blues. Uh-huh. They, they didn't know that they had blues scenes going on right in their own backyard, like in Richmond, California, and Oakland, California. Yeah. Which later I on, I I got into. And
0: so you moved out there right away, and um, when you when you started playing at the Fillmore and kind of, you know, got the stamp of approval or whatever. I guess Bill Graham must have, at some point, um, had some relationship with you. Uh, was he a good guy to work for? And how often did you play at the
1: Fillmore? I never played there again.
0: <laughs> really? That was just the one time.
1: Yeah. I, when I got out there, I had no clue about the business ends of music i had no uh manager I had no booking agency i had nobody me any advice i knew nothing about the business zero uh-huh. yeah and uh all i've done it was just working these little small clubs and we, i don't remember any contracts or the union being involved or nothing i mean we just did yeah. what we wanted to do right and now this is a whole new situation and uh so I just booked myself where I could, and uh, I don't remember all the details now. But it was just like it was hard for me to get in a lot of places because I didn't have a manager. They didn't want to talk to the artist; they want to talk to the manager.
0: Okay. To,
1: to wheel and deal, and I didn't have one. I didn't know. I didn't know how things worked. I Had to figure it all out by trial and error. Yeah. yeah. It, it worked out, but it was a long. A long haul. Um,
0: did you have a band at that point? Like, did you have a California band, or did some of the Chicago guys come out with you?
1: I brought some guys out with me. There was a band that was already uh, together, and that was... Uh, I forget what they called themselves, but Harvey Mandel was in that band. Okay. And uh, I had been to hear them a few times, and they were really... They were a rock band, really a cover band. They did covers. Mm-hmm. and uh, But when they late at night they would like for the last set, you know, they would play what they wanted to play, which was blues and man, they were smoking. Oh yeah. And I thought, you know, here's a band that's all together and has already knows, uh, uh, arrangements for all these different tunes and stuff. And I could just take them and, and, uh, have have them back me up. And yeah, since yeah. I knew that I was going to be on the stage on, on the bill with, uh, uh, Bloomfield was with uh, Paul then, and Eric Clapton. These are some heavyweight guitar players. So I need a heavyweight guitar player. So yeah, Harvey was way into it. So we we did it. And then after the, after we played the Fillmore, all every guy in that band went their separate ways. They all had their own ideas of what they wanted to do, and uh, really, and they all went back to Chicago, and uh, except Harvey stayed. Uh huh. And um, then I just started meeting other musicians all around San Francisco and the Bay Area, and I
0: put together yeah, a
1: band from people I met.
0: Uh huh. And uh, that's how that happened. I know you've made a lot of records and you've consistently been a recording artist since then. Um, and there's definitely been some ups and downs, I'm sure, in the in the process for you. Um, I know in the mid-70s, you signed a deal with a more of a major label, Capital, and um, you made that record, which I think is Leave the Blues to Us, right? Just wondering what that experience was like, like going fr- suddenly to a major label and, and whether it was a, a good thing for you or not good as as many of the experiences are with them
1: well uh I, there was a guy i had known in chicago and had recorded with he was a hustler yeah. <laughs> uh, a producer and guy <coughs> him and Maury had come out to california too because it was a real happening scene and uh, so he got me on on capital
0: like a um a guest performer on so many amazing records too. Um is that something you enjoy doing coming in like uh on a session partway through maybe and playing on a couple of songs? Um you know like for example, Mule variations for Tom Waits was a big one that uh was a real um you, you put a big stamp on that one. Was that experience a, a good one for you?
1: Oh yeah, I really like playing with Tom. We I'm on a bunch of his recordings I, I can't even think of all the names of them but uh we have a lot of fun uh in the studio or just sitting around talking
0: <laughs> yeah I bet uh
1: it's, he has his own way of doing things and it, it works with me real well I,
0: So working with somebody like that where he's probably a bit more experimental sonically, but um still wanting to be rooted in in blues and like really grounded music um how did like how did you was it tricky at all to fit in with that, or did you just kind of like develop it really quickly and easily
1: um, well I'm pretty open to ideas and uh Tom has all kind of ideas that are different from what i usually do like uh sometime i remember one time he had me playing the harmonica just playing on the beat i'd play a chord Mm -hmm. drawing and then i would snort through my nose (laughs) (laughs) and that's what he wanted me to do and he he recorded me playing that uh, on the background just an overdub for this particular tune yeah uh i remember another time um My amp was feeding back, and I'm messing with it, trying to get it to quit feeding back. And Tom says, well, what were you doing? I said, I'm trying to get my amp to quit feeding back. He goes, well, just let it feed back. It's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Keep it. Uh, Keep it.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, when we were doing uh, mule variations, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, he had another microphone set up outside Mm -hmm. because that studio was on a ranch, and on on the ranch, there's like chickens and dogs and turkeys and I don't know what all.
0: That was Prairie Sun, right?
1: Yeah. And you can hear, when you listen to that album, you'll hear from time to time a, a rooster crow or a dog bark or something. And and when Tom was mixing it, from time to time, he'd go listen to that channel. If there was something he liked, he'd add it in. And so when you heard oh, the cool. bark, it happened right at that moment. That we were recording in the studio
0: that mic was always on then the the outdoor chicken mic
1: right and w- <laughs> cool and when he played that back to me and asked me what I thought I but man I just love that and unbeknownst to me again he taped me saying that and on one of the tunes he it was real low you'll hear me in the background saying man I just love that <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah uh, it's good to it's good to be always rolling I guess right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> He's got great ideas.
0: Yeah, yeah. And were those, um, in those situations, like on Mule Variations, were you playing with him live or were you, were you an overdub uh, for for that record?
1: Uh, I think that it was mostly live. A lot of the stuff I do with Tom is overdubs, but I believe Mule Variations was live from what I remember.
0: Another one that sticks out in, in recent years is that amazing record you did with Ben Harper two or three years ago, Get Up. Um, and um just wondering what those sessions were like, if that was a real uh, easy experience. And is and Ben somebody that you go way back with? I, I'm not really sure about that.
1: Well, I first met uh, Ben uh, probably decades earlier when uh, he opened for John Lee. And okay. John Lee had had, had had me come up to play with him. And uh, that's where we all met the okay. first time. And then not too long after that, John Lee had a recording backing him up Was one tune called Burnin' Hell. Yep. And so he had Ben bring his band and added me, and that's the first time Ben and I were in the studio together. I went down to the church hall. I got down.
0: On my knee. I beg, Deacon John, to pray for me. He says, "Son, hear my hand."
1: And we we just clicked and locked in in the studio. Even John Lee said, "You you you guys ought to record more together," you know,
2: <laughs> and. uh
1: So we can start talking about that. We both love blues. And uh, Uh I mean, Ben has a huge, uh, I mean, growing up in a record store, uh, a music store, rather. uh, It was like a folk music store. He had a lot of, you know, he's heard a lot of blues. And uh, so he was way into that. Yeah, his parents uh, still have that store. Yeah. We were both so busy, it took us a long time to find the time off when we were off together at the same time to get in the studio we finally worked it out and and when we got in the studio man the tunes just came out one after another it was like wild horses that pinned up ready to go and they, they broke out
0: Where, where did you make that record? Was that in L.A. somewhere?
1: It must have been in L.A. Yeah, it was in yeah, it was in L.A. Uh, I forget the fellow's name. Uh, Sheldon Bromberg. Yeah. Okay. His studio. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And everything it just went so smooth. I mean, it was just like I don't know how to describe it. It just happened effortlessly. The music just poured out. The slow one at the end. Uh, I forget the title right now, but. All that matters now. Is it. Uh-huh. I didn't even know we were recording, and you could hear me laughing and talking because I didn't <laughs> know we—I didn't know the tape was rolling. I thought we were just screwing around in the studio. Yeah, yeah, and uh, playing a slow blues. Uh-huh. And,
0: uh huh.
1: And I think what happened was t- uh, Ben heard me and Jason uh, fooling around with something, and he t- told the guy to turn on the tape, and, and uh, he got on his guitar and get the band going and we were recording and I didn't even know it. <laughs> oh, man. I thought we were just having fun.
0: the whole record done pretty quickly?
1: We spent several days. Uh-huh. I don't remember exactly how many. More than three hours, though. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> a little bit more, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and can you tell me a bit about your your new record, um, I Ain't Lying? It's a killer record. Your band is smoking hot. Um, are these guys that you've been playing with for a long time now?
1: Yeah, that's my regular touring band. Um, mm-hmm. Except I have a different bass player now that guy on the record was sort of a temporary okay yeah
0: and how did you approach recording recording this record
1: well that was in a live uh concert over in sonoma the city of sonoma california yeah uh in the a, in a, a square in the middle of that town Oh, really? and uh some guy had wanted to record he wanted to actually film too the whole show and He had some big ideas, I don't remember. But he got sick or something and backed out. So at the last minute, here was all these people stranded that were going to be taping that show. And So my wife, Henrietta, was my manager, and she got them all together and we figured out what they needed just to stay on with the project because we thought might as well just follow through here and get it done see what it comes up with. That sounded, and uh, so we put it out on our
0: own label. Is that just one night? That's that's just a straight-up concert?
1: Yeah, it's just one one show, one typical show at the t- of what it sounded like at that time. Um,
0: do you have any plans to make a studio record with that band?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know when we're going to do that, but it's, it's uh, definitely something In we, we want to do, yeah.
0: And what about, um, do you have any guests? Spots like, are, are you collaborating with anybody as well right now, or have any, um, uh, guest things that you've done in the last little while that haven't come out yet that we should be looking forward to?
1: Well, I just finished another album in Clarksville, Mississippi, where I, I recorded, uh, playing guitar.
0: Oh, I, I really?
1: A, yeah, I did a whole album. Some was acoustic, some's electric, some has a, a drummer, some has a drummer and an acoustic bass. Uh huh. And, uh, Mostly songs I wrote. I did awesome. a version of "The Dark" by Guy Clark, uh-huh. and I did a a Ralph Stanley tune called "Rank Strangers." Yeah, man. Uh, so th- this is a little, little way, to, different way to go that people have seen, people have heard me. This, this is a real know. down home raw blues, man. This is a real old deal. <laughs>
0: Clarksdale did you record was it at a studio or was it just in a house or something
1: it was at the Clarksdale sound stage okay it's a studio and uh, this is where uh, uh Morgan Freeman does his overdubs for for uh, commercials and stuff like that oh yeah so he's got a, a good studio Morgan don't you don't record in some place that ain't right
0: right and so he's got a uh, he's got a blues club down there too right
1: yeah it's uh, called ground zero okay and, uh, it's a great place. They have food there too, uh-huh. I love their cornbread and greens when I go there. <laughs> well, I have a home there too. You know, I live I have a home oh, garden on Sunflower Avenue there.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, Parkdale. So that's why you uh, wanted to make a record there. It was just it was close to home, and and you you were feeling it. Obviously, the the vibe there is the right kind of place.
1: That's real relaxed, and the guy that owns the studio, Gary Vincent, is a good friend, and he's a uh-huh. great engineer and uh, producer. And we work really good together and uh, I'm real comfortable there. We just take our time and <clears throat> do what we feel like and get it right. And Steve Miller and I are talking about doing an album of uh, in February, I hope. Of, uh, oh, yeah. We want to do a, a album of blues, paying tribute to all the guys that we knew in Chicago when we were living there and all the guys that helped us and were good to us and that we learned from and, Okay. A tribute, a tribute to them.
0: Was he around Chicago the same time you were? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't at know that. At first,
1: uh, I believe he was going to school up in Madison, Wisconsin, and would come down to Chicago to play and sit in and stuff like that. Then finally, I think he actually just moved to Chicago, and and I saw Steve quite a bit.
0: Okay. Yeah, he was, and and he was doing pretty straight up blues, I guess, at that point, right? I mean, that's his background, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, he was a great blues player. Uh huh. He 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 knew uh, T Bone Walker and Les Paul <laughs> personally. Really? When he well, they were friends of his dad's, and uh, um, he's he gave me a CD of a tape that was made at his dad's home where they had hired uh, T Bone to play at a party, might have really? been a birthday party or something. Yeah. So you hear T Bone doing tunes besides just blues. He's doing standards like all of me why not really yeah No, kidding. Great. that's amazing it's
0: really great yeah wow so somebody's got to release that man
1: well you have to talk to steve about that
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i really look forward to hearing that and um yeah i've seen a video of you playing guitar in clarksdale and i think it's pretty recent so maybe that was from that session or something but it sounded amazing yeah. i think
1: that was a friend of mine came by where i was staying uh, i'm having my our place is being worked on, so we stayed at a place called the Clark House
2: Inn. Okay, yeah. And a
1: friend of mine that knew Big Joe Williams uh, brought by one of old uh, one of the Big Joe's old guitars, and I was sitting there playing it. And Joe played a nine string guitar, but it, it only has six strings at this point because the guy that owns it he can't play it at nine strings, so he took three <laughs> of them off.
0: Did he? Did he just have three extra bass strings on? Is that what he did? Or was no, it like a
1: double double strings
0: like a twelve string on the bottom?
1: The little e, the B string, and the D are doubles. Oh, okay. Now I know a seven string guitar player named Eliotus Achoa. Yeah, lives from in Cuba. Yeah. In Cuba, and he has he plays his D string is doubled, right, and it's, his big the big E he drops down an octave.
0: Yeah, he's and he sort of comes from the from the trays background of of Cuban music.
1: Yeah, we, he, he played on my album, uh, Continental Drifter. We did a bunch of tunes with his group called Quarteto Conti- uh, Patria.
0: Oh, yeah. I saw those guys actually in um, Santiago in Cuba, and uh, they blew my mind. And uh, yeah, I knew oh. you'd made that, re- that record, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. was cuban music always a thing for you
1: well going back to the old days in memphis when i was collecting 78s and i would buy anything else that looked i was curious about it led me to investigate music from around the world yeah and so i had i had found out about uh, Cuban music, Cuban traditional song, especially is what I like mostly because it's kind of down home, bluesy kind of music I'm, in a way. You know,
0: I'm with you there, man. I like that stuff too a lot.
1: I mean, in in Havana, you got all the the big bands and the guys with the ruffled shirts and all, all that. The salsa. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but and that's okay. But I like the down home stuff from Santiago. Yeah, and man. Santiago is kind of like Clarksdale compared to Chicago, Santiago and Havana. Yeah, like totally all remember. the real deal stuff comes from Santiago.
0: Yeah, man. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I had a blast there. We stayed. We stayed in this little house, and and I remember going up to that. I can't remember what the fancy hotel is right in the middle of town there, but we went up to the roof on the on that of that hotel and looked down onto a, a street festival and. And Eliades was playing there with his band, and it was so killer, man. We just stayed there the whole night and watched him.
1: Yeah, I I, I know all those guys are great. We we toured together too. We had a, did he really? Just yeah, just a hell of a good time on the road. We toured all over Scandinavia and Germany uh-huh. and uh, Spain and and Mexico, California.
0: Any plans to hook back up with the, those Cuban guys at all again?
1: Oh, we've talked about it. <clears throat> yeah, I saw Elias not too long ago when he was here with the Winnet Vista Social Club. Okay, and I went backstage and we had dinner together. Uh-huh. My Spanish isn't that good, but we we can communicate. Yeah, he, he he doesn't speak English, so but we we communicate pretty good, and we would like to. Yeah. We have been talking about uh, doing something again. My original idea with them was to have them play their version of blues you know one four five chord change yeah and uh but with a latin uh rhythm or something you know Mm -hmm. and i played them some blues and it's just like (laughs) i could see everybody kind of got quiet Mm -hmm. and i could see that this is going to be trouble yeah i said you know what just forget all about that i know (laughs) all your tunes (laughs) so we recorded (laughs) their tunes and i rewrote I didn't translate them. I wrote my own blues lyrics to their melodies, oh, cool. and uh, I sang these blues lines to yeah. Cuban standard tunes, yeah. uh, traditional song tunes, and this had it happened.
0: Oh man, that's we so did. Cool. We
1: did it in Norway. Um,
0: yeah, I've, I found with with some of the Cuban musicians that I know too that you know they they spend their whole life just playing that music, and and because of. The embargo and stuff that they just haven't really been exposed to other kinds of music necessarily. So they, uh, you know, they're kind of isolated in that way. But they're just so good at what they do.
1: Well, there's a there's a blue society in Havana, and I've been in touch with those guys. And I, oh yeah, uh, when I when I can, when I know somebody's going to Cuba, I send them some guitar strings and harmonicas to take to my friend in Havana. Yeah. But when I was talking to Elianos about recording together i said to him i guess you never heard anybody play harmonica with their tunes Uh he said no actually it it used to be part of their tradition really but there's no but the harmonicas get worn out and you can't fix them anymore like you can fix a car right (laughs) and uh, uh that fascinated me and i looked into that and i found out that way back at some point there was some kind of a military presence in cuba from america yeah, yeah. and there was a, a black guy named Smokey that uh-huh. played harmonica and he was there in cuba really? and uh i think he when the wherever the event was it was there happening that he was there when it ended he went back to to either went back to the united states and then turned around and came back to cuba or uh-huh. he stayed he uh And he played harmonica, and he was from the South, and he must have been a blues player.
0: So this would have been, like, in the 50s or 60s or something?
1: No, I think it was maybe earlier than that. You have to figure out what that event was in Cuba that would have U.S. soldiers there. It might have been in the 20s.
0: Okay. But it was
1: interesting to me to uncover that story.
0: Are there any recordings of that stuff?
1: As far as I know, there's not, but I'd Uh. love to go to... were with a bunch of harmonicas and looked up the old art players that used yeah. to play with guys like Eliotis and see yeah. what they sound like
0: well thanks man I really appreciate you taking the time and talking to me um, I could talk, I could keep going all day but um...
1: well I appreciate it and, and, and I hope the people <clears throat> excuse me I hope the people enjoy listening to it oh they will.
0: All right, thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Charlie Musselwhite. Such a cool man. So glad he could join us, and I'm glad that you could listen to it. Please drop me a line at stevedawson.ca. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing.